0: Um, As you look at Psalm 103 in the inscription, it's going to say of David, and as we think about David, uh, we do not know the exact circumstances that caused him to pen this psalm. Now, there are some scholars, uh, namely like Moenkel and Gunkel, who will say, most likely David did not pen this psalm, but it's probably a post-exilic psalm. You're familiar with the term post-exilic That means it's the time after the Babylonian Empire where the people of Israel go back to the land of Israel. And they feel if that is the case, then possibly the circumstance surrounding the writing of the psalm is their deep want for a king again. Here they are, they're back in the land, uh, still working on the temple and still have no king. So that is the purpose of the writing. But nonetheless, no matter what the circumstance is, this is a very easy psalm to understand, especially when we look at what this psalm is calling us to do. And the psalmist opens up this psalm with an encouragement to himself to bless the Lord. The way we would word this is, it's the Hebrew word baraki, we would say it's praise the Lord. The psalmist is calling upon himself to praise the Lord. And as we look at the first verse, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. The, the psalmist is calling on everything that is within him, his whole being, to praise the Lord. This is the exact antithesis of what we see in Isaiah and Matthew. And I'm talking about Isaiah 29, 13, and Matthew 15:8 where Jesus and Isaiah say these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The psalmist is not looking to give Yahweh mere lip service. He's praising God with all this heart, mind, soul, and strength. And saints, we are called to do the same thing. We're not here to come on Sundays just to give God mere lip service. We come to praise him with everything that is within us, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. As we continue in verse 2, it says, Bless the Lord, or praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. If we're honest, forgetfulness is a great hindrance to gratitude. Forgetfulness causes us to not give God the thanks that he deserves. And let's be honest, in the culture that we live in today, it is very easy to be forgetful. And the reason why is that's the culture we live in when we have these types of devices where we are getting news by the second And our mind is continually fixated on whatever comes across this device or a television set or whatever the case may be. So we can have something happen, let's say in the beginning of the day, and by the time we're six, seven hours on our phone, which I hope that is not the case, but if that is the case, we have totally forgotten the circumstance. But the psalmist does not want to forget all that God has done for him as an individual and just look at these benefits that he lists for us. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? And we're going to get into that concept of steadfast love a little bit more in a minute. And who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. We could see that the benefits that the psalmist has received from God are both physical and spiritual. Thus why the psalmist should be praising God with all that is within him. It is God who has forgiven him of his sin. It is God who any ailment that he has been afflicted with who has healed him. It is God who has redeemed him from the pit It is God who has crowned him with steadfast love and mercy, and it is God who satisfies him with good. And saints, you here today can say the same thing. When you go before your heavenly father, you can gladly say, as you repent before him, that it is him who forgives all your iniquity. If we're honest, for the last two years, we have been afflicted primarily with one disease and For some of you, from what I know, you have had it on multiple occasions and it is him who has healed your body. It is him who has kept you from the pit. It is him who has sustained you throughout these last two years. And shame on us. If we have our minds fixated on anything else that is going to cause us to forget that. As we kind of backtrack and look at these last two years, if anything, we should be replaying time and time again all the ways in which God has been with us and has blessed us. And if there's any question on whether or not he has blessed you, just take a quick review of what's been in the news in these last two years, whether it's been physical, economic, or whatever the case may be. And the mere fact that you are sitting here today and the condition that you are sitting in is a testament to the faithfulness of a good God, and each one of us should be able to proclaim boldly and loudly, bless the Lord, O my soul, because it is him who has been with us. It hasn't been our own strength. It hasn't been anything that we have done to put us in the situation that we are in today. I even look at myself and uh, uh, honest confession, thankfully. I have not had COVID yet, but I don't attribute that to anything in me. That is because of the goodness of God. I have a job that I still can go to every day. That's nothing on me. I attribute that to the goodness of God. And for all of you here today, we must all do the same thing. It is God who has sustained us throughout and kept us throughout, not only this time, but through our whole life. Lives And the psalmist here recognizes that. And if this psalm is of David, which I believe it is, the king of Israel himself recognizes that God is the one who has sustained him throughout. But the psalm continues, going from the psalmist praising him And looking at how God has been with them in his individual life. And now transitioning to how God has been with his people throughout their time as well. And he first starts looking at how the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. And that is in verse 6. The concept of God's justice and righteousness is found all throughout the Old Testament and the Psalms. And this is book four of the book of Psalms, and you'll notice that if you ever, because it's a short portion here of the book of Psalms, noting that God is a God of righteousness and justice is listed four times in Psalm 97.2, in Psalm 99.4, here, and also in Psalm 106.3. So part of God's character is he is a God of righteousness and justice. He is the one that's going to be looking out for the oppressed. And it's interesting that as Teddy was up here, she talked about the stranger. Because if it's our God who does that, if that's one of his attributes, we as his people, it should be our attribute as well. We should be looking out for the oppressed as well. We are the ones who should be stressing righteousness and justice. We are the ones who should be looking out For the least of these. And my hope is that as a church and as our hospitality team and things of that nature grow, that is something that we will do. We will not be looking just to, as the Corinthian church did, looking out for each other and continually bolstering ourselves up, but we'll take this outside the church and be looking for the least of these and looking to bless them as well. But notice verse 7. And here's where we're going to get to the crux of what I'm going to be talking about today. It says, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As we look at verse 7 primarily, we should be asking ourselves as the people of Israel heard this psalm, What would come to the forefront of their mind as the psalmist talks about God making known his ways to Moses? And obviously, as we think of that, it's going to take us all the way back, pretty much to the beginning of the Old Testament. So I'm going to follow a little pattern here, just like our psalmist did when he talked about individually how God blessed him, and he said, who forgives all your iniquity and who heals all your diseases and who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, and who also satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles, we're going to take a trip down memory lane and see all that God has done for the people of Israel. Because this is the thing, as they heard these very words, that would come to the forefront of their mind. The people of Israel, as they heard this psalm, would remember that it was God who multiplied and preserved them throughout their time in Egypt. It was God who, as he promised to multiply Abraham's seed and make of him a great nation, so much so that although they entered Egypt with only 70 people, Exodus 1-7 says that they were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land Was filled with them. So we can remember the words that God told to Abraham when Abraham was wondering about this seed that God was going to give him. And God tells him, Count the sand on the seashore or the stars up in the heavens. That's how much I am going to increase your seed. And that's what happened when the people. Of Israel went down to the land of Egypt as they went with 70 to a point where they were too numerous to count. So numerous that Pharaoh became fearful of the people of Israel and did what? He subjected them to bondage. Yet during this bondage and oppression, God was still with his people. Exodus 1.12 tells us that the more Pharaoh oppressed them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. So here we have the people of Israel. They have the famine during the time of Jacob. They end up staying in the land of Egypt and only have 70 people. And now through the course of 400 years, they multiply greatly, so much so that they outnumber the Egyptians. That's how much within the 400 years that the people of Israel grew. It was also God who, as his people were being oppressed, heard their groanings and remembered his covenant with the patriarchs. It was God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush and commissioned him to Pharaoh for the purpose of bringing out his people from the land of Egypt. And a little interesting note as I bring up the burning bush As you look at Psalm 103, the name that's continually proclaimed throughout this psalm is the name Yahweh. And where does God reveal himself as Yahweh? He reveals himself to Yahweh, to Moses at the burning bush, where Moses then asks God, you're sending me to these people. When they ask me your name, what am I to tell them? You're to tell them that I am Who I am. And we're going to see throughout this list of history that I give you that God continually proves that he is who he says he is. It was God who, when Pharaoh refused to let the people of Israel uh, go, sent great plagues of judgment on the land of Egypt so that the Egyptians would know that he is indeed the Lord who stretched out his hand against Egypt and delivered his people from them. It was God who protected his people's firstborn as all the firstborn of the Egyptians died because he made a distinction between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel. It was God who prior to the people of Israel being released from captivity had given his people favor in the eyes of the Egyptians, giving them an abundance of silver and gold, jewelry and clothing, so much so that the people of Israel plundered the Egyptians. It was God who, when Pharaoh finally let the people go, who led them by day and a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night and a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. It was God who, after Pharaoh let the people go, and then hardened his heart and pursued them, who showed his glory over Pharaoh and his army by having his people cross the sea on dry land by dividing the waters. But as the Egyptians pursued, those same waters returned and covered Pharaoh's army and destroyed his army. It was God who, as the people went into the wilderness, he provided them with water and bread from heaven. And yet after all this, here's where verse 8 comes in. What did the people of Israel do? So as we move to verse 8, because that's where that brings us, if you remember the context of this part, Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from God. And as we do, because I know typically we'd say, why do the Israelites do this? They became impatient and asked Aaron to make them gods that will go before them. So the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night was not enough Aaron, we do not know what's happened to this guy Moses. He's been up on that mountain for a long time. For all we know, he could be dead. So we need you to do us a favor. And here's where the irony of this whole story comes in because I'm imagining, although the text doesn't tell us this, I'm imagining that as the people of Israel ask Aaron to do this and then Aaron says, give me your jewelry so I can fashion you a God, I'm going to have to kind of guess that it's probably... The same jewelry that they received from the Egyptians that they now go and fashion this God with. So, the very thing that God gave them for a blessing, they now use, unfortunately, to sin against God. The people failed to recall the faithfulness of God and now ask Aaron to make them gods. I'm going to bring that up again. The people failed to recall the faithfulness of God. If you remember the first part of the psalm and something that we touched on, the psalmist tells us to not forget his benefits because here's potentially what's going to happen. It's not only going to lead to ingratitude, but more than likely, it's also going to lead into sin as we see here with the people of Israel. They had forgotten all that God who had revealed himself to them, so much so that as Moses goes on the mountain, they say, please stop. Don't have him reveal himself to us anymore because they're filled with awe and trembling. Essentially say that the cloud and the pillar of fire is not enough. Take our jewelry that the same God blessed us with and make for us a God that will now lead us since we don't know what happened to this character, Moses. And of course, as Aaron takes the jewelry from them, although he's going to tell us he just threw it all together and look what came out, Aaron makes for them the golden calf. And as I said, here's where now verse 8 brings us because as God sees the people's sin, He is ready to wipe out the people of Israel and start a new nation through Moses. God judges his people via the sword and a plague, but Moses intercedes. And here's where we see the character of God in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And as you look at Psalm 103, verse 8, these words are going to sound very familiar. It says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So we said verse 7 would have taken them back throughout that long history where God had been with the people of Israel bringing them to the land of Egypt during the famine, and then delivering them from the land of Egypt, bringing them into the promised land. And then verse 8 would remind them of when Moses is on the mountain and they made that golden calf. And here are the words of the Lord. So although his people had sinned against him, God shows another element of his character, that he is a God of steadfast love and mercy. It is here that we observe the steadfast love, or chesed, of our God. And I'm not going to go into too much detail on chesed. I know Pastor John preached on this several weeks back when we first started our psalm study. But I do like how the Reformational Study Bible defines chesed. It says, chesed denotes God's covenant faithfulness and devotion to his people. Because of God's covenant love and faithfulness, he will not abandon his people, but will dwell among them in his tabernacle. And we see that even despite their unfaithfulness. The people of Israel obviously sin greatly against God and exhibited covenant unfaithfulness. Yet God remains faithful because of who he is and because of his steadfast love for his people. And that's good news, friends. That is great news that even in the midst of us being unfaithful, God remains faithful. His promises are true. And that is great news, especially as we look at ourselves and knowing our sin that despite us, despite our sin, God remains faithful to us. So we move on and look at verses 9 through 14, these verses expand upon the concept of God's steadfast love and mercy primarily through parallelism. So let's look at these verses. I'm going to read them and then we'll we'll go over. It says, He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So we look at verses 9 and 10. although our sin is great, just like the people of Israel, God does not remain angry with us or repay us according to our sin. And I'm probably going to get the verse wrong, but this is how good God is. And I think it's 1 John 1.10. If I'm wrong, please someone correct me. But it tells us that, when we go before God and repent of our sin, he's what? He is faithful to forgive. He is faithful to forgive us. So though our sin is great and we deserve so much more, when we come to God with humble and contrite hearts, as Cheryl had noted several times throughout the beginning of the service, God is faithful to forgive us and doesn't punish us as our sins deserve. Verses 11 and 12 show us that God's steadfast love and forgiveness is so vast that it cannot be measured. Notes here, as far as the east is from the west or as high as the heavens are above the earth, it's just telling us that God's love, his steadfast love for us is so vast that it cannot be measured. Measured. As I read this verse, it reminded me of two uh, hymns. Uh, one we used to sing here regularly. We probably still sing it somewhat regularly. And the other one, probably one of my favorite hymns. The first one is How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And you all know the beginning of that one. It's How Vast Beyond All Measure. God's steadfast love for us cannot be measured. And the other is the song The Love of God. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that one. But it goes, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. And then the verse, I mean, the uh, (coughs) chorus goes, Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. Both these authors did well in helping us as the people of God sing about how vast God's love is. And yet still, we still don't comprehend it because we are a people of measurements. So we move on to verse 13. It tells us again about God's steadfast love. So not only is it so vast that it cannot be measured, but here the psalmist compares God's love to the compassion a father shows to his child. And as I read this verse, I couldn't help to think but of rather of anything but the story of the prodigal son, which I'm going to turn there now in chapter uh, Luke chapter 15 verses 11. And <clears throat> it says here and he said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, "Father, give me What these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat, that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who was or who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. What great compassion God shows to us that, just like the people of Israel, here you have this great plunder, and you squandered it on this golden calf. God is still quick to forgive. And we see it here in the story of the prodigal son. He's given much by his father. Takes what is his and goes and squanders it all the way. And I just love how the story notes that the father's waiting for him. That's how much God loves us, that the father was waiting for him to return. And when he did return, he welcomed him with open arms. Praise God. Note, and this is very important in the text as we go back to Psalm 103, and I think it's also fitting, as we just looked at the prodigal son, we're going to see three times within this text that it's for those who fear him. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Verse 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. So what is this concept of those who fear him? And verse 17 expands on it a little bit as it talks about those who keep his covenant and here's that key word again, remember to do his Commandments, But looking at the prodigal son and also looking at the people of Israel as we look back, more importantly, it's recognizing that we have sinned against the holy God and coming to him in contrite hearts asking for forgiveness. And what a beautiful picture the prodigal son gives us of that as he recognizes that he's not even worthy to go before his father. He's not even worthy to be treated as a son. He's ready to go back just as a mere servant. And saints, these are the hearts that we should have when we sin against God and go before him and ask for forgiveness. Do we go humbly expecting forgiveness or do we go as if we deserve it based on who we are as we go to God for forgiveness? And this is what this means. And I think Paul touches on this a lot as we look at the book of Romans. We can't have a mind of antinomianism. And if you don't know what antinomianism is, it's essentially with a mindset that I can do whatever I want because God is a good and gracious God, and He, because of His character, has to forgive me. So no law applies to me. I can just go and sin. If I do that, though, am I someone who fears God? Am I someone who loves God or am I someone now who is taking advantage of the love that God wants to show me? And I think this becomes important because even as I was thinking of this text, if I'm someone who does not want to have anything to do with my father, how can I experience his love and his benefits? Because here he is reaching out to me, trying to provide me with these things. And I continue to say, no, no, thank you. I've got this. So we must be a people who fear him, and that fear should be exhibited through our wanting to obey him. And that becomes a fine line. I just want to touch on that really quick. Understanding that our obedience does not save us, but it comes to understanding that because God loves me and has done so much for me, I want to obey him. Why would I do anything else? Because he has shown me time and time again that what he wants for me is for my good. Anyway, And that's something, as the people of God, that we must understand. <clears throat> Moving on to verses 15 and 16. It says, "As For man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Here the psalmist now looks at the love of God and compares it to the life of man. And as we look at the life of man, man is here today and gone tomorrow. Our days are short. But as we look at the steadfast love of God, it remains forever. And ever, So not only is it vast, not only does it show us great compassion, but it's eternal. The steadfast love of God is eternal. It's from everlasting to everlasting. And as I thought of this verse, I couldn't help to think of Romans 8, verses 38 through 39. And just like some folks in here said, their memory is starting to go. I'm going to turn to that as well. But it's a very familiar verse for all of that I th- for all of us rather. I think we've used it in a benediction on several occasions, but it says for I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. Jesus, our Lord. His love is forever, and nothing will separate his love from his people. Nothing. That's good news, saints. Nothing is going to separate the love of God from his people. The psalmist closes this psalm in much of the same way as he opened it. But now is not calling on himself individually to praise God, but now he calls on the whole creation to bless the name of God. It says, "Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord all His works in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul." The Lord is the true and living king that rules over everything. And in his grace, both his special and common grace, he sustains everything. If you're not familiar with the term common grace or special grace, special grace is what he gives to his people that enables them to come to faith. Common grace is what he shows to every man. So every man should be thankful to God for the roof over their head for what he gives them that helps sustain them on a daily basis for the clothes on their back etc cetera, etc cetera. God does that for all of his creation because he has dominion over all of his creation and as each one of us looks back as the psalmist calls all of God's hosts now to do should invoke us to praise so my hope for each one of us is that we will look back. It's weird, I've been, uh, I became a podcast nerd, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> but I've been uh, listening to a lot of podcasts on gratitude. Now obviously the world's gonna do things differently that, than we do, but one of the things that they talk about in these podcasts time and time again is setting aside time and essentially keeping a gratitude journal. And you get into the science of it. It talks about how it affects your mood and everything else, which I'm not going to get into because it's a whole other story for a whole other time. But I think the point, and here's where this becomes important, I think we as the people of God, especially to show ourselves different from the world, to help renew our minds and transform us, need to be setting aside time for we to stop and pause and reflect on all that God has done for us, both spiritually and physically. Because again, we are more prone to forget than we are to remember. And that's not a cultural thing in terms of just us, as we just read. That's a man thing. Unfortunately, all of us have short-term memory. And let's be honest, sometimes circumstances in life can cause that because we allow our circumstances to circumvent probably what we should be doing. So my encouragement to you, even if it's five minutes a day, stop, pause, and think of all that God has done for you and then praise him accordingly. Because as you will see, as you make that list day in and day out, he is more than worthy of all glory, honor, and praise.